Hello, I'm Lon Schiffbauer, and today we're going to talk about Democracy, Science, and Industrialism by Woods, Watt, and Anderson. Now, in a previous reading, we talked about the creation of abstract land and the practice of enclosing common lands. We also learned how this practice essentially created what R.L. Hellbroner called the most miserable of all social classes, an agricultural proletarian. Communities that had farmed essentially the same land for generations now found themselves without land or resources. This had many effects, including the introduction of the abstract notion of labor, the idea of selling one's skills, effort, and time for money. This brings us to what Woods, Watt, and Anderson called the naughtiest and most vexing of problems. With the start of the Industrial Revolution, England shifted from an agrarian to an industrial economy. This sort of economy gave rise to essentially two classes, the owners, capital, and workers, labor. As the authors put it, since the erection and operation of the factories demanded two things, money for building and maintenance, and mill hands to operate the power looms, England soon found herself with two new major classes of society, that representing capital and that representing labor, the employer and the employed. On paper, the relationship seemed balanced enough. The owner has a factory full of looms that need workers, and the workers had mouths to feed and families to raise. So the factory owners hire workers and paid them for their effort, and workers showed up each day and produced fabric in the mills. Each side is contributing their part of this business transaction and in return having their needs met. Awesome. Thing is, I don't need to point out that nothing is really as simple as it seems on paper, least of all economic and social contracts that exist between capital and labor. Abuses arose from the get-go, so the question became, to what degree should the government insert itself into this relationship and impose regulations on industry? The two ends of this spectrum were laissez-faire on one end and legislative action and industry controls on the other. As the authors described the two options, these were laissez-faire and legislative reform. The first, as the name implies, was the economic theory of hands-off. The other was more direct and positive. It required for its operation legislative action and control of industry. This idea of laissez-faire is important to understand. According to the authors, the assertion is that economic adjustments follow certain natural laws which can be depended upon to work to the ultimate advantage of humanity, and these laws should be allowed to function without interference. In other words, an economy is like a natural system and operates for the ultimate benefit of everyone involved, if we resist the temptation to meddle and instead just leave it alone. An analogy might be found in the reintroduction of wolves to Yellowstone. For an interesting video on this topic, Google How Wolves Changed Rivers. As the theory goes, when humans removed the wolves from the park to support ranchers, they affected the ecosystem in ways that were not healthy for the environment, and that by reintroducing the wolf and taking more of a hands-off laissez-faire approach, the ecosystem rebounded and all benefited. However, the claim that the laws of nature apply equally to the laws of economics is not embraced equally by all. After all, nature and the process of natural selection is amoral, 
meaning that the actions taken by plants and animals are not good or bad, virtuous or evil. They're simply following the natural law of survival of the fittest. Assigning the same amoral quality to an economic system and allowing all involved to do whatever it takes to thrive may be something of a stretch, hence the call for regulation. However, regulation is typically enacted by those in power, and at this stage of the Industrial Revolution, there was little appetite for regulation among those in power. As the authors put it, it was soon obvious that in spite of the energy and enthusiasm of social and industrial reformers, no adequate industrial controls could be affected while parliamentary representation was almost entirely in the hands of a dwindling aristocracy and a set of wealthy mill owners. In other words, those in power owed their position to the wealthy business people, and there wasn't a lot of appetite to bite the hand that feeds them. Sound familiar? But the theory of laissez-faire was not the only philosophical shift that influenced business thought at this time. The theory of evolution itself, which we already cited as quote-unquote proof, the natural system allowed to function without interference would bring about the greatest possible good for all involved, changed the way people saw themselves in relation to God, each other, their communities, and to themselves. As the authors put it, Against the ancient belief that man was created the center of the universe and was made in the image of God and endowed by his creator with authority over beast, bird, and fish, was advanced a new philosophy shocking beyond measure to many orthodox Victorians. The theory of evolution claimed for man no such central position in the plan of creation. By slow growth and through a process of long development, he ascended, rather, from earlier and lower forms. Thus, his relation to God was not so scientifically demonstrable as was his kinship with the great apes and even animals lower in the scale. This recalibration of man's place in the universe had an effect on his attitudes toward business, especially when it came to such things as critical thinking, problem-solving, and innovation. As the authors put it, if the new philosophy was disturbing to some minds, it was also stimulating. By removing man from his smug post at the center of the universe, it gave him a sounder view of the physical universe and a better sense of proportion. And the method of scientific investigation stiffened his system of thought. Skepticism, as Huxley pointed out, was no longer a sin but a virtue, and knowledge based on human authority was replaced, at least in the empire of physical phenomena, by that rooted strongly in careful investigation, observation, and logical induction. So by seeing the world and by taking thought about it, man increased his intellectual independence and his mental stature. What's remarkable to consider is that while these ideas may have been introduced during the Industrial Revolution, they continue to drive and in many cases vex us today. The role of government in regulating industries or legislating morality is as topical today as it was when they were first introduced centuries ago. And so there you are. There's a quick overview of this reading. I hope it helps give you some direction and good luck on your assignments.